we come to the Sermon on the Mount looking for specific instructions on how to behave, that's a form of legalism. We need to come to it, first of all, as a lover of the Master. If we don't love Jesus, we will only do what is minimally expected of us. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today comes to us from the Bruderhof community. He's an author, teacher, and former professor, Charles Moore. Probably no other writing throughout human history has been more influential and misunderstood than the teachings of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. Charles Moore recently edited a very special book from Plough Publishing. It's titled, Following the Call, Living the Sermon on the Mount Together. The book is a collection of short essays from over 100 different writers and thinkers from a variety of Christian traditions throughout history. From Basil the Great to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, from Teresa of Avila to Wendell Berry and Dallas Willard. Now, what this collection does is paint a really helpful picture for what it looks like to live into the Sermon on the Mount and to do so as a community. Twice a year, we at Renovari thoughtfully put together a small booklet to send out as a gift to the folks on our mailing list. We were so impressed with following the call that we approached the folks at Plow to see if they would allow us to put together a sample of the essays for our upcoming booklet and they graciously agreed. So we had Richard Foster pick the selections and write an opening introduction. If you're on our physical mailing list, you'll be receiving this booklet shortly. And if you're not, you can sign up for our physical mailing list at renovare.org join. That's renovare.org join. And to help introduce this work, I had a conversation with Charles Moore from his home in Denver, Colorado. Charles, in reading the introduction to the book, it dawned on me how much sense it makes for Plow to be publishing this and for it to be born out of your life in Bruderhof community. It, it just fits the Sermon on the Mount. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about why the Sermon on the Mount is so important to you guys as a community and let people know a little bit about Bruderhof. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Nathan. Well, actually, I, I need to give a little bit of backstory because the Sermon on the Mount has been central in my own personal life. The first book that I ever read as a new Christian was The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And um, it was mostly over my head because I was only 18, but it really steered to the center of Jesus's teaching. And as I read the Sermon on the Mount, I was often baffled, confused, but I was always curious to better understand it. And when I talked about the Sermon on the Mount with other people, they were either baffled or they were quite resistant. They didn't really want to talk about it, or they would try to explain it away, uh, always saying, don't take it literally. So the Sermon on the Mount really set a trajectory in my own discipleship. And eventually, when I um, began to study Christian ethics and then later 
taught Christian ethics at Denver Seminary, uh, the Sermon on the Mount became just paramount in my understanding of what Christian ethics was all about. Uh, all during that time, I was um, seeking with others how to live it out collectively, because I, I concluded quite early that it was not just a personal ethic, that Jesus was teaching something about how to be a kingdom people together, and that this was the constitution of the kingdom. Uh, this eventually led me to join the Bruderhof community in the early 90s. Um, the Bruderhof began in 1920, and it began on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount. There were a lot of disillusioned young people um, after World War I. They were disgusted by the hypocrisy of the church, and they wanted something more authentic. And the rallying cry was, well, how do we live out Jesus' teachings? Let's not just preach. Let's not just um, have church on Sundays and live the rest of our lives as we see fit. And so our community was really born out of a search of what does it mean to live this out together. And these were German folks, is that yeah, accurate? Yeah, in Germany. And it was mostly younger people. Eberhard Arnold, who helped to begin the, the community, was himself a professor, and he was captivated by the Sermon on the Mount. So that is kind of our DNA. We try to live out the spirit and the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount in, in our daily lives. So it was natural in my many years working with Plow Publishing and the many books that I've done, it was natural to bring together a collection similar to my prior book, Call to Community, is the title of that book. It was just kind of natural to put a book together around that theme uh, because it's just so central to our community. It's actually central to what Plow Publishing is about. So and Christianity, I think we could exactly. <laughs> I think we could go there too. <laughs> it, it, exactly, and that's what was exciting because the Sermon on the Mount is the sermon for all Christians. It's the sermon for the church, and even if it's been neglected or interpreted into oblivion or we failed to live it out. So many people, um, so many deep thinkers and followers have made it central to their own life. And uh, as I've read over the years, I started collecting a lot of things besides what Bonhoeffer wrote about the, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I knew that there was reams of material, especially material from people who were struggling to know what does this actually mean in everyday life. I mean, there's zillions of commentators that have tried to exegete every portion of the Sermon on the Mount to try to get clarity. But there's a whole host of Christian thinkers and authors through the ages that have actually tried to figure out how to live it out. And some of the counter movements or alternative movements to the main church, whether that be in the early history of the church till today, have actually come into being because of wanting to live more faithfully the words of Jesus. Tell me a little about your process of making decisions about what to put in the book and what not to. Okay, so the book is a collection. So each chapter, there's 52 chapters, partly designed as a way to read the Sermon on the Mount together in a group setting, a chapter a week. Each chapter has several selections from different authors in different time periods. Uh, in fact, in the end, I think I've counted 112 different authors. So how did I go about choosing them? Some of it is just very personal. This is something that has meant a lot to me personally, this writing or this particular author. 
I think the main criterion that I used was this is a selection grappling with the implications of Jesus's word in one's life. So the book is not a commentary, although there's some really great insights that add clarity like a commentator would have. It's not a devotional book where you just have tidbits of um, encouragement and inspiration for your own personal life. I, I was looking at material that would combine both personal and prophetic voices that would help propel the reader to do what Jesus was teaching. Because the end of the Sermon on the Mount is, unless you do what I say, your house is built on sand. He didn't say, unless you understand what I say, unless you do it. So the selections are aimed towards pushing us towards obedience, and not just outer obedience, but inner obedience. I wanted an array of authors from different traditions because something could be said that you maybe have read before, but it's said in a unique way, in a language that may not be something you're familiar with, that then helps the light go on again. We can become over-familiar with a text. And so hopefully the selections will help us to see anew something that maybe we had thought about before, but it brings its relevance more immediate. So I wanted to respect different traditions. So you have a, a wide variety. You have Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant. You have radical, evangelical. It, it was not meant to be ecumenical for ecumenical purposes. It really was an attempt to bring together thoughtful people from different traditions so that the Sermon on the Mount could be made alive again. Oh, the selection is outstanding. And I now that you say that, I'm remembering it is. It's all very practical and, and there's a lot of wisdom and insight, but yeah, it's how people are wrestling with it themselves in a way. Yeah, it, it's definitely not a how-to book. I don't think I have a selection there that says, this is how you apply it, one, two, three. But when you read it, you feel compelled, I have to apply this in some way or another. I, I wanted something existential where the reader would respond. They'd go back to the text and go, ah, I've neglected this, or I need to be more faithful in this. This makes me pause and consider my life. Am I really living out what Jesus was saying? So that's the personal, prophetic, kind of the existential components to the selections. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I failed to grasp how this really was spoken to community and to be lived out. When you highlighted that in the book, everything just popped for me. Of course, that's you know where Jesus was aiming with this. I'm really curious to hear what that looks like for you guys to try and live this out. And what is it, you know, practically day to day? Well, I'm hesitant to say what it should look like from day to day because everyone's context is different. But, you know, when we look at what Jesus says, I mean, just take, for instance, the first, what's known as antithesis in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said long ago, do not murder or kill, and anyone who does so will be subject to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother, and then he talks about offering a gift at the altar. When you stop and think about it, the divisiveness, the walls that can exist between fellow believers. I mean, that's what a lot of the world looks at. The church is divided. There's hypocrisy. There's bickering. There's power struggles. 
And here we are, Sunday after Sunday, bringing our gift of worship to the altar. And we're not taking the time and the effort to reconcile one with another. And so we have to start right there as an example. What about fellow believers in my own life? It might be a loose circle of friends. What about my family that claims to be Christian? What about the congregation that I'm a part of for fellowship? Where are there walls that exist between myself and another? If we can't find a way to reconcile one to another, we're actually, in one form or another, killing each other. And that makes a mockery of whatever you want to consider as worship. So here's a teaching, and each person individually, each group needs to grapple with, okay, so what does this really mean? What is true worship? And though I may have not murdered or killed anybody, where have I created walls that essentially keep a person out of one's life? That's another way of saying eliminated. And that's what you do when you kill. You eliminate. So, you know, in our own community, for instance, we will not come to prayer, communal prayer. I have vowed that I will not come to communal prayer unless I know that I'm at peace with my brothers and sisters in that community. So what does that mean? I have to go and speak with them beforehand. If there's something in my heart or there's something between us, and unless that gets reconciled, I wait and not come to prayer. Um, That's part of the commitment. Do I do that perfectly every time? No. Sometimes I've come to the altar and then God's convicted me. So then afterwards, I have to go and say, hey, we're not at peace with one another or I have something against you, or I sense you have something against me, we've got to clear this up, or our prayers will be hindered. That's beautiful. Right. So, I haven't been to prayer for the last month, and this is why. (laughs) Could be. But if it's just a passive, like I'm stewing, or I'm afraid to come to my brother, I'm avoiding, that's not a solution. It doesn't mean I'm safe. I haven't come to the altar, so I haven't done anything wrong. The real issue is, what am I doing to further blessed are those who are a peacemaker? That's comes right before that, the beatitude. You know, we can spiritualize that or we can say, well, you know, that's not my gift or, you know, I'm not at war with anybody. Yeah, we can kind of rationalize that away. Or do I really trust blessed are the peacemakers for you shall be called sons of God, children of God. And if I take that seriously, then I got to be doing that work. Yeah. Regardless of any worship meeting. (laughs) I mean, for a lot of people, they couldn't come together because of COVID. That's no excuse that I don't still come and try to reconcile. In compiling all the essays, were there new insights that you gained personally or different ways in which you begin to see the Sermon on the Mount? There's definitely many insights that made me stop at one point or another. That's probably why I chose it. Or it was said in a way that really brought a deeper conviction in my in my life. I'll give you an example. And this was a late addition to the book, actually. I was at a theological library, and I happened to come across a writing from Robert McAfee Brown, who was a scholar of the last century. He was reflecting on the portion of the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he says the following, This is a prayer some people pray without admitting it. 
a prayer that a few other people are honest enough to acknowledge is what they really desire. It goes, quote, Our Father who art in heaven, stay there. <laughs> we can cope with a God who is sequestered in some corner of heaven or even center stage, but far off, which is where we like our gods to be, safely removed from our dwelling place and therefore no threat to us. How sincere are we when we say, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, here on earth as it is in heaven. Do we really mean that? <laughs> because I think if we really mean that, we have to be ready to be disturbed. We need to be ready to be overturned with some of our priorities. We need to be ready to stand in holy ground and uh, take off our shoes and feel undone. Not because God is a uh, fierce God in the sense of um, ready to damn people, but he's fierce in his holiness. Am I really wanting his holy presence? Because that's going to mean I'm going to have to change. Right. Am I willing to give up my will? And give up my will for, for his will. We can glibly or out of habit, or we think that we mean this. So that kind of just stopped me in my tracks. And I can't pray this portion of the Lord's Prayer without really stopping <laughs> and examining, am I really ready to have that prayer answered? This is just one uh, many insights. Here's another one by Helmut Thielicke. He was a theologian pastor in Germany. He um, preached and wrote a great deal. He preached a number of sermons after the war to give hope to the congregation. And he says the following, Jesus, this is with regards to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus saying is so thoroughly comforting and true to life. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And we may add, the Father knows what you need even contrary to what you ask. <laughs> so, again, it makes me stop. I can express my wishes, my intercessions, my petitions, my request to God. We need to come to Him as a Heavenly Father, as a child. All the while, are we ready to receive something contrary to what we actually really need? And He goes on and talks about what we really need beyond what we might want. The book is peppered with these kinds of insights, ways of expressing things that I might not have considered. So I'm not sure exactly uh, the question you asked me originally, but I have to say not every single writing has impacted my life as much as every other writing in the book, but that's partly why I selected these writings. Do you have a favorite? Gosh, um, I've asked myself that. It's okay if you don't. I just curious yeah. if there's one or two where you're like, ooh, I'm so glad to, you know, put those in yeah. there. Yeah. I don't know if I have a favorite, but I do love from the very first chapter entitled Master Teacher, something from E. Stanley Jones. He says, there is a beyondness in the Sermon on the Mount that startles and appalls the legalistic mind. It sees no limit to duty. The first mile does not suffice. He will go too. The coat is not enough. 
He will give the cloak also. To love friends is not enough. He will love enemies as well. Come to that with a legalistic mind, and it is impossible and absurd. Come to it with the mind of the lover, and nothing else is possible. (laughs) What I love about this is that we often kind of go to scriptures looking for concrete instructions, a manual for living, some rules to live by, something that we can follow that will lead to success or happiness or whatever it might be. But if we come to the Sermon on the Mount looking for specific instructions on how to behave That's a form of legalism. We need to come to it, first of all, as a lover of the master. If we don't love Jesus, we will only do what is minimally expected of us. Or if we do that which is what most people think is beyond what is expected, we will not do it from a free and joyful heart. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to obey as a lover would obey. In that way, we would go beyond even what Jesus is indicating. (laughs) That makes sense. That makes sense. Give me your hope for readers, your hope for this book. What I really hope is that people, first of all, have come away with a deeper love for Christ, a deeper devotion, wanting to be more attached to the vine, that Jesus really becomes all in all. And out of that, an eagerness to live out his instructions. And what are his instructions? They simply are, this is what life is like in my Father's kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all the things you might need in life will be given to you, but much more. I hope that readers come away, not just with a greater love for the Sermon on the Mount, but for Christ. And by the way, Jesus is the incarnation of the Sermon on the Mount. If we really want to know how to live it out, we have to stay close to Christ because he illustrates it with his life and not try to explain and rationalize what we deem as hard or difficult because Jesus came to bring life and bring it abundantly. The Sermon on the Mount leads to life in the kingdom. So they come away with that greater passion and devotion to Christ in his kingdom. I see this as a really important book and a book to not be rushed through, to, you know, take one's time. Because it's dealing with such an important teaching that is so misunderstood and confusing Mm -hmm. and, you know, difficult. So it it puts skin on it, at least it does for me. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think people forget how central this is. It's not just that this is the first of a group of teachings that Matthew has in his gospel. This is the first of five teachings of Jesus. The book of James, which is the earliest book that we have in the New Testament, written about 45 AD, it's peppered with quotations and allusions from the Sermon on the Mount. Anywhere to how you count it, 22 to 26 references. The earliest church's catechetical teaching, called the Didache, the teaching, is littered with direct quotations from the Sermon on the Mount. And if you start looking at Peter and Paul, you'd be surprised at how many allusions or quotations. So it's really at the core. It's not the whole gospel. I like to put it this way. The Sermon on the Mount is not the gospel, but it's the hands and feet of the good news of the kingdom of God when God's kingdom breaks in. 
That's good. Before we close, I, I don't want to miss an opportunity to share a little with folks about Plow. And, and I got a chance to be with you guys a number of years ago yeah. and spend some time with the publishing house. Could you let people know a little about Plow? Sure. Plow is the publishing arm of the Bruderhof community. It's an outreach ministry. We do very few books, but the books that we do are of highest quality and the content, I think, is rich. But one of the things that Plow is really committed to is what we call the Plow Quarterly, which is a quarterly magazine, beautifully artistic. The writing is of, of highest quality. It consists of a, a vast array of current authors weighing in on an important theme or topic or subject that's relevant for today. So the next issue will be um, coming out. Actually, it's off the press. I think it's in the mail. It's called Beyond Borders. And we deal with what is our responsibility as the church towards those who have to leave one border and find themselves on another side of the border. So yeah, we're small, but we try to discuss things not just from a wide range of points of view, but really gospel-centered. Some people really gravitate to us because we are not ideologically left or right. We're not even trying to be center. We're just trying to be faithful to the implications of Jesus and the teachings of Christ. That comes through. It, it really does. I mean, I, I think of, uh, you guys just do good and important things. It, 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 I trust what you put out, that, that there's going yeah. to be something helpful in it. That's special. Thanks. It's a wonderful yeah. ministry. Charles, really good to talk with you. And thanks Thank for you. putting this book together and letting us use selections for the Renovari community. Yeah, that, that's great to collaborate. That means a lot. And Nathan, for taking time. And I trust that uh, our paths will cross again. And that was Charles Moore talking about the work he's edited into book form titled Following the Call, Living the Sermon on the Mount Together. You can find out more about this book, as well as Plow's excellent quarterly magazine at plow.com. That's P-L-O-U-G-H dot com. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare podcast. This work is made possible by donations from people like you. You can support this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled, Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends.